How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with people? I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming as church is the most vocal political voice against Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual how can your story be good that is from the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in your ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church's concern is being a good anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to the newest episode of the church needs therapy Today, our guest is D.L. Mayfield, and Danielle lives and writes on the outskirts of Portland, Oregon, with her husband and two small children. How old are your kids, by the way, Danielle? Uh, they're 10 and 5. 10 and 5, nice. So not so small, small right, anymore. Right. I'm 4 and 2, so we're in very different places. Ooh, I remember those years, but <laughs> we're, we're not in them anymore. Yeah, yeah, we're in very different places. Danielle grew up in an evangelical home homeschooled and a pastor's kid and like i've seen before she grew up wanting to save souls in faraway lands i love it her first book of essays assimilator go home notes from a failed missionary on rediscovering faith was released by harper one in 2016 her second book the myth of the american dream reflections on affluence autonomy safety and power was released in april of 2020 her writing has appeared in all kinds of places like the McSweeney's Christianity Today, Sojourners, Washington Post, amongst many others. And, if, and, a, and a, an interesting thing at the end, she says she's addicted to surprising relationships wherever she can find them. And she's always trying very hard to be a good neighbor. Danielle, thank you so much for taking the time to be with the Church Needs Therapy podcast today. I'm happy to be here. And, you know, what an apt name uh, for a podcast right now, huh? <laughs> I know, right? I know. Let's, uh, let's begin with just a subtle glimpse into you. Um, why, when you use that phrase, which I love, you know, why do you consider yourself a failed missionary? And how is that admission important for your life and for your work and where you're taking things now? Yeah, I think when I first started writing, um, it really was in the context of trying to share about my life, which I had, you know, been going to Bible college, wanting to be a missionary, was practicing on some of my neighbors here in Portland who were recently arrived Somali Bantu refugees. And at first, you know, the term failed missionary, it's like, well, it's just accurate. Nobody ever converted <laughs> to be, <laughs> you know, a white evangelical like me. And then I think the aftermath of of kind of marinating in that phrase is saying, um, what does it mean to be a failed colonizer? What does it mean to, to <laughs> fail at uh, maybe something that you weren't supposed to be doing anyways? And a part of my, I would say, inward journey has been, I was raised in white evangelicalism, which told me that I had all the answers to God. I was at the pinnacle of history and theology and um, all of these things. And even I think deeper than that is the sense that white Protestants in the United States were uniquely gifted by God to be in power, to be in control, and, and more people should be like us and believe like us. And so that's really heavy duty stuff. I didn't I wasn't able to articulate that when I was 19 trying to be a missionary, mm. but when I did fail miserably and my neighbors who were really different from me, you know, were like, that's great for you. Um, we're Muslim and we're going to stay Muslim. And mm. do you want to keep hanging out? And I'm like, I, I do. And I really feel like God wants me to keep hanging mm. out. And um, from that point on, when I would be in relationship with communities that were really different for me. And I ended up moving in, you know, and being a neighbor, living in apartment complexes with refugee and immigrant neighbors. And I, and to this day, I still live in, in neighborhoods where that's, you know, a huge majority of the neighborhood because I find it really life-giving and it's where I find a lot of joy. But once I was in those spaces, it was really hard to reconcile with some of that white saviorism I had been taught because I'm like, I'm experiencing God here and now. I'm not bringing 
God with me anywhere. God is at work in the world and God is using my neighbors who are not Christian to teach me some things, to bring up really hard questions that force me to think about my religion, my country, my nationality, uh, you know, way more than the church had done for me. And so that is sort of an isolating experience because, um, I was, I was having a little bit of a crisis of faith, but I couldn't tell my faith community about that, right? Because mm. I would be seen as heretical. And it sounds so cliche, but I'm like, man, in my in my neighbors, like they're the ones who showed Jesus to me, mm. like the ways they loved me, the ways they look out for each other, the ways they um, just are so much less individualist, you know, than my community, the ways they're so generous, even though most of them are living in poverty. Like I saw so much of Jesus, Jesus's message, Jesus's words in life mirrored in this community. And yet my faith community was like, no, you need to make them think like you sign a mm-hmm. doctrinal statement that we believe, you know, all this stuff. So, mm-hmm. sorry, that was a really long answer to your oh, question. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's what I love is that even that phrase failed missionary, becomes the opening for like really the whole being born again in a totally different way and how you are present to and love people. So it's amazing how it acknowledges it seems bad, but it's actually good. And it actually opened me up to a whole new future. That's why I think that phrase is just so brilliant and why I think it's so great. Also, uh, it's also funny with Bible college stuff because I did not grow up in the church. I had this like unexpected spontaneous awakening moment with God when I was 18 while I was on mushrooms. And then my first experience around Christians was like at a Bible college. Cause uh, two or three years later, I, you know, felt called to be a pastor. I go to Bible college and I was like, I've almost never been around Christians before. And now I'm thrown into a Bible college. And it was just like that for me was as culturally sort of, different than it was for the kids who were there to sort of enter into newer spaces, whether they're going to different countries. So I always love the stories of people there and kind of what happened. It's like, I'm 20. I read some William Lane Craig. I got it. Let's move forward. (laughs) Let's go. Let's go. (laughs) Oh man. There's a, you know, there's a theme that's really important and powerful in your work. And it's this consistent refrain of we're transformed by those on the edges, we're transformed by the poor, we're transformed by the vulnerable, by those who are different from us. And when when we hear that, it's not magic. You know, it's not like you're just there and it changes you. Like there's an actual thing that happens within us. Um, how, how are we transformed by difference? You know, what actually happens to us when we're in these new spaces that sort of awakens us to new ways of being and shows us a new thing? Yeah, I think what's interesting is I, I feel like even some of those phrases like we're transformed by new relationships or I, I you know, I've said I like surprising relationships. I think taken out of context, it can just seem like I'm saying we need to be friends with people who are different from us. And that's not actually what I'm mm. saying because that's what it often well, it's gets fun and it's exciting. Boiled it's down good. to yeah. <laughs> what I'm what I've come to realize is um, you know, we live in a world, so I really I really base all my writing in my context, which as I've already said, I'm a white evangelical in the United States. Um, So that's where I'm writing from. And um, I would say Christianity and especially white Christianity is like the dominant culture Hmm. religion of the United States. Almost like, you know, Jonathan Wilson Hargrove calls it a folk religion almost. So Hmm. even if you don't attend church, uh, a lot of like people would identify with, you know, I'm a, Christian, this is God's nation, you know, we Mm. need to keep it God's nation, we need to make it great again, all this stuff, right? Mm. That's just a part of the world we live in. And so for me, it's been so important to be in relationship and be under the leadership and listen to the voices of people who have not only don't have as much power in society, but who have been like systematically disenfranchised and kept from accessing power. Mm. So those groups are going to have some insights into our world, into our society, into our religion that I simply do not have because I come from this group that has historically had access to power. So it's, um, and even as I'm saying that it feels a little weird and like utilitarian or pragmatic. And I don't mean it that way. So, so to make this like Christian, right. I'm just saying, the Holy Spirit uses people 
who have been on the edges of the United States to teach me mm. about how unjust and unequal our society is. And they teach me how God wants to work in the world. They teach mm. me a way forward. And I think that's going to be something really important for us. You know, the United States right now, we're, we're recording this January 15th, right? It's been a little over a week since there was like an insurrection at our state capitol, all this mm. stuff. And already people are rushing to say like, oh my gosh, how do we move forward? How do we do this? And it's like, well, I think the answer is pretty obvious. We need to listen to the people who've said all along how dangerous Trumpism can be, how dangerous violence and violent rhetoric um, can be, the real consequences it has. And so for me, it's like there's groups of people who are better able to see the problems and those same groups of people are going to be better at uh, envisioning a new way forward. And I actually think that's a, a theme in scripture Absolutely. that we see over and over again. I mean, you brought up Bible college. I remember in Bible college, right? Especially like going through all the books of the prophets and the old Testament. I was just like really bored to be perfectly honest <laughs> through a lot of it. And like so many discussions about idols and what are idols. And, hmm. um, but, but when I go back and look at that, the almost every time, right. The, the Hebrew scriptures talk about idolatry. There's also verses about how the people have forgotten the poor. You've forgotten mm. the poor, you've forgotten the widow, you've forgotten the orphan, and you've forgotten the foreigner and your responsibility to them. And those groups of people are always put side by side with God saying, you've turned to false idols. Mm. And when you turn to false idols, you forget the most marginalized and your responsibility to them. And I'm like, man, God is saying that right there. It, it's it's mm. not just to be good people and to listen to them, but they are the ones who will give you the warning signs. Mm. They're the ones who will first suffer if people are not taking care of each other, if they're hoarding too much and not sharing. Like they're the canaries in the coal mine mm. in a way. And also I do think scripture prioritizes these groups of people as the ones whom, you know, have a sense of what God's dream for the world really is, which is that everyone would flourish. And when those marginalized groups flourish, we're all going to flourish. Yeah, no, that's so good. I think even looking at the text and the prophets, like what you were saying, you know, we, we take these interpretive and imaginative, you know, sort of leaps and movements to make connections. But even last week, sometimes you're like, it's, this is, that is this, you know, like to make, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation, but you can make jumps from there to where we are. Cause even last week, I'm like, with, with the capital thing happening on epiphany and a lot of people were reflecting on that. You're like, there's an insecure ruler who can't accept that he's no longer in power. And now he's willing to destroy his own people for it's, to oh my like to make those leaps yeah. they're like that's not a leap that's just a, you just took a step you know right there it's like right here yes yeah, so i think seeing those themes have been there the power the forgetting the idols are not just things we normally name as explicitly spiritual but it's anything that holds our hearts captive anything our imaginations are caught up in anything we believe in it sort of gains this allegiance from us I have a lot to say about that, about prophets, about poets, and about the capital. But I did want to follow up on the last question about people on the edges, failed missionary, because I think there's so much great stuff you have on there. In the chapter you wrote in the myth of the American dream, Waking Up Sad, which is a great title, by the way, you, you end by acknowledging how you know we cannot save the world, and then you go on to show the appreciation for small things. I kiss my child when they wake up. My husband makes my coffee. I linger. Depending on what age your kids were at that point, you probably didn't have very long with that coffee, but you had it in the moment. And I have this inside joke with a friend of mine where he always says to me, you know, Kev, in my 20s, I wanted to save the world. And in my 30s, I'm just trying to get through the day and get a decent night's sleep. What, what do you think happens in that jump from that sentiment of saving the world, now I'm appreciating small things, my friend, I'm saving the world and I'm just getting through the day. What happens within us to sort of make that move? Like what do we lose along the way, but what do we gain to get there as well? That's like such a good question. And it's one I think I've wrestled with a really long time. And honestly, in some ways I view like writing that essay about 
waking up sad, even titling it that in some ways, that's my little like flare I'm sending out into the world just to be like, is anybody else waking up sad? Because <laughs> honestly, through social media or even like um, Christianese, a lot of it, if, if you look at it, it's like trust in the Lord with all your heart and, you know, like flowery and you're like, I, I trust in God. I don't ever wake up like in despair. Um, but that's not like, again, that's not what scriptures are like. And one thing I, I say often is, um, you know, 30% of the Psalms are lament Psalms. Mm. And yet, how does that show up in our Christian worship songs? It doesn't. How does it show up in like evangelical uh, worship services? It doesn't, you know? And so I've, I felt the sadness start to seep out because my church community did not give me ways to, to let that authentic part of being alive in the world I mean, if you are paying attention, you will be sad, right? Mm. That's just the that's just the reality. I think the the thing I'm glad to leave behind is the sense that I can save the world, um, that it's on my shoulders. Mm. Because first of all, that's a huge burden, and second of all, it's it's a savior complex, and it mm. perpetuates violence and oppression and this you know colonizer mindset that I, I was raised with. So I'm I'm glad to put that aside. And yet I am really uninterested in toxic positivity or in just saying, you know, like we're just going to let the world be what it is and Mm -hmm. all of that, because I still think the central theme of Jesus's life, work and ministry was to love your neighbor as yourself, which means we have to be tied to what's going on in Mm -hmm. the world because what's going on in the world is what's happening to our neighbors right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, Brandy Miller, who's this amazing like activist theologian, she says politics is just like systems who, that impact bodies, right? Actual people. And we can usually like really take it away. Like, oh, I don't want to get involved in politics. But I'm like, politics in- impacts people. So of course, mm-hmm. as Christians, we have to be involved in that. And so for me, taking off this idea of I'm going to save the world. Well, I tried I didn't. Now I feel terrible about myself. Mm. And well, your conversion mo- rate was 0%. So <laughs> you 0%. And then even trying to be involved in like social justice issues. Like when you really start to get involved in some of this stuff, you're like, okay, <laughs> this stuff has lasted for centuries. This mm. stuff is so deeply ingrained in our society and who we are. I mean, we're seeing the fruits of like, for instance, Christian nationalism, right? Mm. Come to light in the United States, it's like, well, this is something that's been around from the beginning. We're not going to fix this anytime soon. It can be so overwhelming, but it's been really great again to sort of learn from my more, um, you know, collectivist friends who come from more collectivist societies. It's like, yeah, you're not going to save the world, but you get to be one tiny part of being a part of God's dream for the world. And so we, we, we approach this thing of mutuality all together. We are going to take step by step to see God's dream for the world come. And so that little by little step by step, that really does go well with this. We also have to practice gratitude at that same level that we try and engage with the world. We do need to practice gratitude. And I, I love this, um, activist Dorothy Day. She started the Catholic worker movement in the 1930s in the United States. And um, she talked a ton about the duty of delight. Mm -hmm. But then in her own life, I I call it, she practiced the duty of despair, you know? And so she was on this perpetual, like, uh, you have to despair over how unjust things are in the world. You also have to delight Mm -hmm. in where we do see love, hope, goodness show up. And I, I'm interested in both. I don't want a life that only has one or the other. I think you can tell from my writings, I'm a little better at the despair part. Therefore, <laughs> like my Christian practice needs to be leaning into hope, gratitude, mm. delight. But for other people, maybe they're better at the delight part and they need yeah. help and Christian discipleship to say, I actually need to have my my life upended because of the injustice going on. Yeah. So, you know, that's just, I know not everybody's like me, but I do feel like on that continuum, we can all take a moment to say, what, which one is easier for me and which one do I need help with? Absolutely. Yeah, no, that, that's a, that's a huge insight, even just into personality types in general of like, I'm much more good at the parting part. I'm much more good at like, it's easier for me to be the cynical and point out what's wrong and the person who's good at the delight needs to take the weight of life more seriously because they're missing out on some of the fullness of what it means to be human, of what it means to carry this world within us, to grieve on behalf of the world. But then the people where it's easier to be cynical are like, I need the people to be like, but it's also awesome. 
You know what I'm saying? When it's easy <laughs> yeah. to be like, it's, it's when it's, that's not the natural orientation. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good. I, I think people are always looking for authors, for books. And you know, when you ask people about books that have shaped them, it's not just the content, it's the content mixed with where we were and who we were when it happened. You know, there's that powerful mm -hmm. relationship of the book that shaped me most profoundly 10 years ago wouldn't really do much for me right now, perhaps because of where I am. But in that moment, that was like what tilted my consciousness just enough for a whole new thing. So along the way, growing up, you know, pastor's kid, homeschooled, and now to be where you are, there's obviously been some voices that have shaped you, reshaped you, challenged you, and provoked you along the way. What are just a, a couple of those specific, not just writers, but books where in that moment, in that season of your life, you're like, wow, okay, this, this is different, bigger, like where you it does that thing to you. What were a couple of those moments? Yeah, I, I always like fear these questions because I'm like, I'm going to forget some really important voices. But and your friends are like, uh. I know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I will say I, I feel this tension of, of writing about my past and, and wanting to sort of deal with some of the, the junk within white evangelicalism. I can feel this tension from my family, my faith community. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, you really never say anything positive. You know, and at the same time, I'm like, it's true. You, you guys <laughs> did, you guys did introduce me to Jesus and the yeah. Bible. Right. And so I have to say that at the same time, it's really hard to, you know, fast forward to 2015 and beyond where, when I try and say, Hey, here's how I'm trying to take Jesus seriously. Here's how I'm mm -hmm. trying to take scripture seriously. It's been, um, you know, it has not been responsible been received well. Right. And sure. so, um, but I can remember like going into a family Christian bookstore, which they used to be around a lot more in the nineties and, and getting I have this one. Book. I have, I, there's a, there's something like that, like three blocks from my house right now. So. <gasps> really? They're like yeah. all closed in Portland. Um, but <laughs> I remember walking in one and getting this book called rich Christians in an age of hunger by Ron mm -hmm. Sider. And Oh my gosh, it just blew my brain. And I've I reread it last year. It is held up. It is one of those wow. things where I would encourage anyone to pick it up now. Mm. You will probably want to do at least one or two things to to change your life in response to that. And that's what I'm always looking for. I also had um a really intense experience. I think I write about this in my first book, uh reading Shane Claiborne's work. And I know a lot of people that's like a first step too for them. I read uh, Jesus for president was his mm. first book I read. And, and I just remember I just got married and telling my husband, like we have to change everything about our life, you know, all this stuff. Um, and then I would say, uh, a little after that, I, I started uh, reading The Life of Dorothy Day, who I've already mentioned. And um, she has this book called The Long Loneliness, where she really describes just what it was like for her to try and say, hey, I think the church, and she was a Catholic, I think the Catholic church has some stuff to say mm. uh, about the issues facing our world, which is like homelessness and poverty and militarization and racism. Um, let's try and put it into action. And it's just her yeah. story of this wild time of doing that. So those are three books that it's awesome. I, I would still recommend, especially if you're coming from a dominant culture, like a white Christian culture. Those are three excellent resources. And now, you know, I'm really interested in uh, focusing again on this, on the voices that have um, been ignored. Right. And my Bible college, like I just mentioned three white authors, right? Well, my Bible mm -hmm. college, the syllabi was all white yep. basically and mostly male. And so just saying like, it's not bad to read white authors, but if that's all you've read or all that's moved you, it is definitely time to think about Absolutely. how do I move on? And it's, it's interesting. Cause I, I do, I mean, there's definitely books I love, you know, I love Willie James Jennings. I love mm -hmm. um, James Cone right now is just mm -hmm. blowing my mind, but even with books, there's still some gatekeeping and there's still a lot of barriers to, to getting all the diverse voices out there. So social media is just awesome right now. We can follow mm, so yeah. many people from so yeah. many walks of life who are doing radical things. And this is not a book, but I already mentioned my friend, Brandy Miller. She has this podcast mm. called Reclaiming My Theology. And every mm. guest she interviews, I'm just like, this is blowing my mind. These are all mm. Christians I've never heard of. Most of them come from non-dominant culture perspectives. And it's just like, 
a fire hose of amazing stuff. Yeah. No, that's so good. I appreciate that. It was Brandy Miller. What was the name? Reclaiming Re- My Theology? Reclaiming My Theology. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And she's on Instagram and she has this podcast and a Patreon too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. Those moments, those moments are so special along the way. Just what it does. You know, sometimes they make like, I've had moments reading a book. I remember in my early twenties where like I get almost sick to my stomach. I think cause immediately it was like, I have all these pieces that are starting to come together and this author says something where it all sticks, but you immediately see the implications of it of like, if I say this, here's how they'll think, or they might respond to me. And you kind of are like, Oh, am I really going here? But at the same time, the gravitational pull of the spirit is what's pulling you. This is just true. Like when you have those moments, you know, you know, it'll put you at odds, but it's also just those. Yeah. I I just love those moments in people's lives. Um, So your most recent book without the subtitle, the myth of the American dream. So that title in and of itself will probably upset some of your family members and, and friends along the way. When people start, this is something I'm interested in. When people start to see cracks in the American dream, whether it's they see through the dangers of the myth of American exceptionalism, they're seeing through some of the colonizing realities of manifest destiny, they start to see that the story we tell ourselves about ourselves might not be as accurate as we were taught growing up. Right? That pe- there's many different on-ramps of how people start to get there, especially thinking about Christians from a dominant culture. Why do you think the reaction by Christians can be so emotionally charged if you challenge the American dream? It's like, what do, what do, you, what do people have to lose if they start to open themselves up to seeing that story and their story as Americans differently? Because, I mean, you know, it's, it's so heightened. Why, why is that? Why is there such a strong reaction to that, do you think? It's such a good question, and I feel really unqualified to answer it in a way. And so that's... Basically I feel like what that- I'm saying is, why does your uncle get so mad at you when you just can't write a chapter <laughs> saying about how good America is? Yeah, I mean... I, when I told my dad I was writing this book, you know, the only thing he asked me was like, well, you're not like writing a pro-communist book, right? It's not like a book about socialism, right? And I'm like, no, dad. But that was like, <laughs> you know, literally all he said about it. And so I think looking at, again, I published this book <laughs> 2020 it already feels highly outdated because there's so many people i mean isn't that great that's in- yes that's you so know crazy. it's like yes i feel like our capital has been stormed our president encouraged it i'm pretty sure we are literally a failed democracy at this point yeah mm. i'm pretty sure nobody thinks america is like the greatest thing in the world maybe few mm. people do but most mm. people are like you already said there's a there's a continuum. There's different on-roads. Well, many people have been forced on on-roads perhaps in the yeah. last year of saying, yep. you know, I think not everything's what is cracked out to be. Now, I've, I've approached this question a few different ways. One of them, I think, is that white patriarchal Protestant supremacy is baked into white evangelicalism so that's really hard and that's a lot of like that that, that's your short elevator pitch to your family you're like that's what it is it's simple but it's really hard because i that's why i try to write a book of essays is because just saying that doesn't help anybody just saying what i just said a lot of people are just immediately turned off they're like you're just using a lot of you know quote unquote woke words whatever Mm. and what i'm trying to say is deep down in your heart you think that god has blessed white Protestants to discover America, quote unquote, discover Mm -hmm. that God blessed the genocide of native Americans because they refused to convert in the ways we wanted them to. God blessed chattel slavery because Mm -hmm. that allowed America to become prosperous. You know, Mm -hmm. God has blessed so many elements that have gotten us to where we are today. And the only way to move forward is if we make sure that Christians remain in power, Mm -hmm. that Christian morality remains in power Mm -hmm. and you know, all this stuff. So like that's getting to the heart of everything. That's getting Mm -hmm. to the heart of their theology, their politics, the way they view themselves. Now, again, that's kind of a big picture deal. So sometimes I like to do these things 
to just get a different perspective. So like recently I went on Amazon and I looked at like the top 20 books in like Christianity and social issues. That's how they like categorized it. Mm. And you should go and Google that. And I'm, I'm going to encourage everybody when you're done listening to this. And um, the divide is stark because you'll see like three or four books written on race and how like Christians need to deal with race. And it's like authors of color, these wonderful books, all of that. The other like 10 books on there are all about um, why communism is bad, why the left is the biggest threat to the church, why social justice warriors are ruining Christianity, how socialism is going to end Christianity as we know it. Um, And so I just looked at that the other day and I was like, huh, so I think it's great that progressives really want to understand race because I think that's something in 2020 with Black Lives Matter, uh, George Floyd's death, like all of this has really come to the focus that Christians need to think about that. I will say conservative Christians are really obsessed with economics, in particular upholding capitalism and uh, demeaning any sort of collectivist or left-leaning like economic system, which is directly tied to politics. So I think when you start to bring up this stuff, people get threatened because it has to do with their money, (laughs) has to do with their business, has to do with um, them wanting to keep and hoard resources, which is unbiblical in my personal opinion, you know, all that stuff. So to me, it's interesting. I go back and say, what was my dad worried about? He was worried that I was going to say capitalism is, is not great, which it isn't. (laughs) Capitalism in the United States today is immoral and unethical and not Christ-like in any way, shape, or form. I mean, full stop. And yet, if you look at most churches, like, they're not going to say that. And they'll have money management classes from a supposedly biblical perspective that actually encourage people to hoard wealth. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's not what the Bible tells I'm sorry, I'm getting on a tangent. But that's <laughs> I, I'm trying to be practical, you know? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. man, people find this, like, scary mm-hmm. for their money. They're very, very scared of the left. They're very, very scared about, um, you know, universal health care. Meanwhile, they pay so much out of pocket for their own health care, but they're terrified of the idea of maybe putting in money to help pay for somebody else. It's just, we've, we've gotten to a wild spot here. Yeah. Yeah. And even to, to follow up on that or to extend that in, into a different place, you know, when you speak the truth, people get uncomfortable. And in your book, you quote James Baldwin when he says, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. What does that quote mean to you? And also how does your identity as a follower of Jesus even like enliven and connect with that even more? Because I mean, that's, that's one of the ironies of those contentious conversations is when you critique America, there's a, there's this, you know, outcry, but there's always a part of that critique based out of the love and the desire for her to become more of who she was intended to be, or for, or even when you brought out for the world to become more of who God intended her to be. So, you know, what does that quote mean? And also how does your role as a Christian sort of be like, yes, like that's a part of what we do here out of love and out of a desire for justice. Yeah. I think that Baldwin quote is pretty famous for a reason because it does make people feel a little bit better about engaging in his writings, but his writings are like so incredible and so intense and he pulls no punches. You know, I'd really encourage people to watch this documentary made about him. I am not your Negro. And the way it ends is just saying like, listen, this, this issue of racism, like it's not for black people to solve. Like white people, you have a diseased way of looking in the world, of being in the world, and you have oppressed and caused people to suffer. And y'all need to reckon with that. Like that's some hard stuff. And so I actually, people ask me a lot because of my book and blah, blah, blah. Like, am I patriotic? How do I feel? I'm like, I I don't have a patriotic bone in my body at (laughs) all. Like I am not like James Baldwin. I do not love America, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I have really intense feelings about America. So that, that means I probably do. Mm -hmm. I just am in a state of perpetual grief, mourning, anger, uh, over, uh, you know, how, how far 
our stated ideals have never, you know, they've never actually been put into practice. I do love, you know, how Dr. King always talked about it. Like he said, I want to pin America to the wall, to their stated ideals. And actually, Mm -hmm. you know, there's been this amazing work by Nicole Hannah-Jones with the New York Times in the 1619 Project. And, Mm -hmm. And she wrote this amazing essay about how basically black Americans are the ones who have demanded our democracy actually work for people Mm. through all the civil rights movement for this continual fight for, you know, against police brutality, all this stuff. Like it's black Americans who are saying you are not acting in just ways. You must change it. And so really when we think about some of the better elements of our democracy, we have black Americans to thank, right? We have these groups who have pushed for it. And I think about James Baldwin, I'm like, why did he love America? What did America ever give him? You know, Dr. King said he loved America. And he also said over and over again, they are going to kill me. Americans are going to kill me. And they did. And so I think we need to take that really seriously. Um, what some of these thinkers have been trying to tell us, like Mm. there's elements I love and I know it will kill me in the end. And I think there's so many voices that have been trying to say that. Whereas so many people in my community are like, stop protesting already. Mm. Jeez Louise. Like all you care about is the bad stuff. And it's like, we can't even begin to get to a place of love until we see some justice. And that's Mm. kind of where I am. Yeah. No, that's so good. You know, you have this interesting experience of like, it seems from what you say growing up, like as immersed in sort of the evangelical subculture as one can be, you know, so you know, the ins and outs you've seen more than I probably would even want to know, you know, to be <laughs> honest. And I've, I've only like, I went to Bible college for those three years and I was like, all right, I get it. It's time for me to like, just keep moving <laughs> forward. Even though, even though I had a great experience, I was like, this isn't it you know, Mm -hmm. in and of itself, this is a part of the whole, you know? So you have that, you have all this insight, but also you seem to be very interested in truth telling. It's what we're talking about right now, speaking the truth to power, calling out injustice. With all of your experience in the church, this is asking you to reflect on the experience of leaders. Why is it hard for pastors to be truth tellers? and to speak truth to power. What are some of the main barriers from your perspective that you think get in the way of pastors preaching and leading from actually speaking the truth to concrete social, political injustices and things happening, let's just say specifically in our country? I mean, the simplest answer is probably money, right? You need- Oh, it's all about that money again. I mean, you. If got, I you, say this, those people are those people might leave, and they right. give X percentage of our thing yep. per year, and I, yeah, yeah. So I think it's pretty well known that um, most wealthy people tend to skew Republican in their politics because yeah. of tax uh, codes and and all that stuff. Um, so I think there's that practical element of it, and I think taking a step back, uh, anyone who is sort of like hide themselves to certain institutions surviving right um and so i would i would really lump like people who work at christian colleges into this category too not just pastors people who are involved in like christian publications christian publishing if you've tied yourself to the success of this institution both financially and just like um you know, culturally, then you really are going to be tied as far as what you can say because you have to uphold the institution, right? And the institution Mm -hmm. needs to survive. And therefore, it becomes about upholding and protecting the institution. And this isn't just about issues of like what we've been talking about, but this is why abuse happens in churches. This Mm -hmm. is why, because people are so committed to like, well, We don't want it to get out that there was this person who abused because God's doing so much good work here. And Mm -hmm. so to like bring up the abuse is going to end the good work that we are doing. So it's really, really troubling when your allegiance is to upholding an institution. Mm -hmm. And that is just what happens, not just to pastors, but to lots of people. And it's why I'm really, really happy to be a freelance writer. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much freedom and like, um, you know, this, I, I have that freedom of, um, if somebody gets mad at me, it's not going to take down a whole thing. And so I'm not saying, <laughs> I, I also want to, I don't want to make it clear that I think every pastor does that because I don't, I think yeah. so many incredible 
people out there leading and shepherding. But in America right now, if you think you can just sort of stay out of the fray as a pastor, like that's only going to last for a tiny bit longer. This is just me looking down the barrel. And I'd be curious to hear what you say about that. Well, I think, you know, that in my early 20s, my wife and I, like, we're in Hawaii. We got married. We, we lived in Orange County, California, for, like, five or six years. Are you familiar with Orange County? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting place. Yeah. A lot of my best friends live there. And, you know, so I'm at, like, a white suburban, you know, mega church for five years when I'm there. And <clears throat> I look back now, whether it's issues of, like, LGBT LGBTQ people and inclusion talking about injustice, talking about any of the things I don't even have to name that we know if you talk about, you're going to deal with backlash, right? Or resistance. And now because of how the culture around us is evolving and growing and changing, I'm like those days, think like LGBTQ stuff specifically. It's like those days of don't ask, don't tell, Let's give a general, generous message without actually saying anything. I think in the 90s, you could still get away with that to a degree. You know, you're still causing a ton of damage along the way for people who are there, let's be honest. But culturally, institutionally, you could still get away with it. And even when I was there, you know, 2008, nine, I think you could still kind of get away with that. But now it's like the times around us are, I was going to ask this later, but I, some, I think about 2020 and even continuing right now as apocalyptic mm-hmm. in the sense of apocalypse means to reveal. Mm-hmm. You know, these are apocalyptic revealing times. What is being revealed about America? For what's being revealed to people who have not had their eyes open? Because a there lot of people, go. this yeah. is not apocalyptic. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Exactly. So for the broader cultural consciousness that's been able to sleepwalk through a lot of the injustice and disparity because of their privilege, now, okay, that you're watching the news, there's marching happening. It's at your front doorstep right now in, in ways it hasn't been before visually. And so, yeah, I just think the days of being able to do general avoiding tactics, you know, to make really to maintain the institutions are changing. And I think those, the conviction and the freedom to tell the truth is needed now more than ever and we'll see, and you kind of are seeing who's going to do that. There's so many courageous people who are doing that, even mm-hmm. as they lead local, concrete, mm-hmm. you know, uh, expressions of the faith and obviously outside of it too. But those days of just being able to kind of just generalize things. That, I'm like, I, listen, I used to listen to sermons like, you didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. You, didn't, you, said, you thought you said everything. You didn't say anything. And sometimes when I hear some of these people now, 15 years later, I tell my friends, I'm like, they're like, oh, did you know this guy said this? I'm like, that would have been dope if he said that 15 years ago. Then I would have been interested. But now I'm like, well, that's, he's kind of just following the flow, which is another mm-hmm. way to protect me. There's even for me, I'm like ranting for a sec, but some pastors during the Black Lives Matter movement, I'm like, you're saying that because the culture shifted enough where it's bad for your institution to not say that. And if it was 10 years ago, it would have been the opposite because it would have been what's best for the institution. Like, I just can't help, but there's certain voices. I'm like, come on, bro. Like that's still a a PR move to me, you know, of what's best because of where things are. Anyways, this is a quote from Walter Brueggemann that you have in your book which I love because I love Brueggemann. He played one of those roles for me along the way. Our church out here is called Imagine in large part because of his work on imagination. <gasps> That's so cool. Yeah, that you have so to be cool. able to imagine an alternative future, which invites yeah. those different social possibilities. Like that's yeah. why our church is named Imagine, essentially. That's so cool. So you, there's this quote, which I think is probably from uh, a hopeful imagination. I'm not sure. But he writes, poets have no advice to give people. They only want people to see differently and to re-envision life. And you wrote that your heart leaps when you hear this. I think of the, pro- the, the prophet is one who says no and says yes. You know, we say no to the way things are in order to open up a space for the possibility of a new yes. What do you see as the relationship between those two? Because you said like poet, prophet, you kind of make that distinction. You're like, I would more rather just be a po- poet 
but you still have to do the prophetic truth telling part is one of those harder than the other. What is the relationship between those two? Yeah, I think for me, um, I'm drawn, I'm really drawn to prophets just in scripture, in my life, in the reading. Um, I'm just really drawn to like bold statements that point out the evils of empire, right? And how empire crushes people. You know, Brueggemann is so awesome when he, when he really unpacks how prophets are just people who are saying not everything is great, not everything mm. is great, and how that is so um, troubling to people who are trying to say like, no, it, it's going fine. Please stop um, doing this. And so for me, like even this summer being involved in Black Lives Matter protests, right? It's just like, oh, I feel a spiritual connection, right? I actually went down and got tear gas with my Tuesday night prayer ladies. Like, mm. and we were like, this is a spiritual experience we're having. Mm, and um, because we're here to say the world is not okay. There is no justice mm. for black and brown people in Portland and in most every other place in our country right mm. now. Um, and so for me, I'm like, yes, that is just like a component of my Christianity that I'm really drawn to the prophets, but kind of with the whole duty of delight, duty of despair thing, I, I recognize um, I do need to sort of think about the poetry and the mm. artists and the, the re-envisioners. And so like for me, it was really important to try and write my book more essay style so less like here's what's wrong and here's how you fix it but like I am just on a journey of asking mm. questions and so I, <clears throat> I write a lot about trying to pay attention to our world and trying to be curious about the world yeah, and curiosity. then I see I love the way you use that so good and so for me I'm like I think poets and prophets both do that maybe it just mm. looks different but they're both trying to pay attention and they're mm. both trying to be curious maybe the prophet is a little bit more about telling the truth about the world and the poet's a little bit more of like how can we play with what's coming, what's next? Mm. Um, but for me, I think curiosity and paying attention are, are, are things all of us, no matter where we are on that spectrum, can kind of lean into. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. His, his stuff on imagine, it's Prophetic Imagination was wrote in 1978. It's so good. It holds up it's, so it's, well. Yeah, that, his, his stuff on that is, is unmatched. And yeah. that's always been a big part of, I think our approach to the imagination comes before the implementation. And that's mm. very true for my life personally, but also for like the concreteness of our local church here. Imagine. So yeah, when I saw it, I'm like, yeah, his, his stuff is, is pretty unmatched. But back to that idea of 2020 and 2021 being apocalyptic in the sense of, you know, not in the left behind ish, but in like the, apocalypse in greek means to reveal right it's to look behind the veil of things and a lot of the if people are looking behind the veil of america and of the church right now it's like we said before people especially those on the margins who haven't had the ability to ignore what's behind the veil their whole life this isn't new but for a lot of people they are glimpsing it, it's it is crazy to think that but for the first time they're starting to the veil's being opened in mm -hmm, front of them. Mm -hmm. They can't just ignore it in the same way they used to. So you think about 2020, which was not that long ago, which is insane. And then now the beginning of 2021, the capital, if these, if this last year is apocalyptic for the church, for America, what is being, what do you think is being revealed right now to people both in the church about, who America is, what is that revealing? They look behind the veil and what are people seeing that perhaps their privilege and positions of affluence and safety haven't required them to look at up until this point? Yeah, I, I just feel like it's such a good question for all of us to think about going forward. And I don't know if I have an answer because um, I'm pretty, since I'm pretty close to these communities that, uh, you know, enable and actually uphold some of the violence happening. I'm just like really, I'm just really grieving right now. And so it's really hard for me to have a clear sense of like, what are other people experiencing this as? You mentioned, you know, left behind books. And like, I totally grew up uh, with one of my parents really believed the end of the world was, was imminent. And so like, mm. I was raised uh, with all of that. Like mm -hmm. I'm going to be a martyr before I'm 16 years old and all that. I didn't actually get my driver's license. 
in high school because I was like, well, the end of the world's coming. I don't need to do, I did not apply to college. Like this is wild stuff. You know, this is, last, uh, you know, last year or at the end of 2019, when we were still meeting in person, we did it like a teaching series on revelation. And so I'm like making jokes about stuff like what you just said. I'm like, cause I'm showing how like, you know, this affects the concreteness of our lives and economics and politics and how even there's so much history of the U S government making decisions based on prophetic countdowns and timelines and just yeah. weird stuff. And I, it's so funny for me to hear that because when, for me, from a distance, I can read stuff online like, oh, this person didn't get their license because of this, or this person didn't go to college, or their parents told them. And I'm like, but in the back of my head, I'm like, but does that really, like, did that happen? You know? So I love the fact that you just confirmed <laughs> for me so much of what I say without always knowing it's true. It did happen. <laughs> and it's like, really traumatic in retrospect you know and so it's like i joke about it too but it's a, it's not a fun way to uh to grow up and mm. and so when you mentioned like left behind i'm like you know for a lot of people right now they are experiencing what's happening as this is the end Absolutely. of white christian america this mm. is the end mm. and when biden's in office if god doesn't magically get trump to be inaugurated again, which some are still really thinking he will be, uh, then it's the end, the end of white Christian America. And they will experience it and grieve it as that. And, and so like, when I think about that, I, I get pretty depressed. Now, mm. of course, you brought up the fact that for other people, this is a time of unveiling. Um, and it's probably around so many things. and It's all happening mm. at once. I would really hope that we continue to press into this idea of Christian nationalism mm. or this idea that America should be ruled only by Christians. Um, and I hope we can think about possibly looking at a more globalized, pluralistic way of being people of faith in, in a very diverse world. Um, but I guess... The, instead of an answer, I really have this question, you know, moving forward, are, is the church going to be a place where people are, you know, if, if, is the church going to be a place where people are being told you should keep asking these questions or are they going to go to church to be comforted and to stop asking those questions, right? So are they going to be encouraged to keep opening their eyes for the unveiling to get deeper and deeper and deeper? Or are they going to go to church to hear a message like, you know what? all we need to do is like be unified. And so like we encourage us to move forward in unity, blah, blah, you know, to me, I'm like, yeah, you are taking this moment and uh, ruining it. <laughs> you're, you're taking this momentum that people have mm -hmm. to unveil and uncover and dig, dig deep. And you're saying, let's just cover it over business as usual. Um, so, so I guess that's, that's, Everybody listening, right? If you come from different spaces, you can think about your church. Is the church encouraging me in the unveiling and the reckoning? Or are they actually really concerned with getting over this little blip uh, in our history? Mm. Which I don't think it's a blip, but that's just how, you know, some people yeah, want to view it. Yeah. You know, with all of that said, I think with such clarity on you know, being able to name what are the barriers, what's getting in the way, the injustice, right? Embracing that prophetic role of truth telling like you have, you know, that's for people who aren't used to that. It is, it is uncomfortable. And for some people, it's like, dude, just chill. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, can you just stop? Like we did that for a month, like take it easy, you know? And there is a, you know, a, a, a like, a sadness, uh, almost a perpetual state of grief that you have to learn how to be in when you allow your eyes to be open to injustice. You know, you have to learn how to consistently, you know, you're holding, it's not your responsibility to save the world as an individual, obviously, but you are in a unique way holding the world within you and carrying it with you and carrying your friends and your communities in you where your life is bigger than you. And that can be overwhelming so that there is this perpetual grief and caring of that that people with those prophetic sensibilities have and that's not always easy you know and if, if people don't aren't tuned into that frequency it's they don't understand it they don't always get that and they don't appreciate the fruit and the what comes out of it when you're like this is all out of the irony is like this is all out of love and my desire to see people flourish that can't happen when we don't actually begin by naming it you know what i mean yeah so you do such a great job of that. Now for one of my last questions, perhaps this is, this is the last question. 
what do you love about the church? When things you've been a part of, things you see, you're like, that's when she shines like this. This is it. Like, this is why I'm in. This is why I'm still fighting for her. This is why I'm still captivated by her and a part of her. It's like, what are those? Like, what brings you hope? But also, like, what is it about? Like, what do you love about the church? And when are those moments you're like, this is, this is it. When I'm in tune with this part, this is when it's like the grounding, the like concreteness of like, yeah, this, this is, this is good. Yeah. I think I'm just really, really happy that my specific religious context is just one tiny part of Mm -hmm. God's church in the world. Um, And so I've actually found so much comfort and joy in, uh, you know, digging into the global historic church uh, is just really, you know, going back to that. I am not the one to bring God's kingdom. I'm just, you know, when I look at like global historical Christianity, I'm like, I'm just like a tiny little ant, you know, and together with all these other ants, we make so many mistakes and um, there's all this going on, but we're drawn together by the truth of who Jesus is. And so looking forward, Um, you know, you were just mentioning how people like, it could be overwhelming for us to try and live in grief and like, oh my gosh, the world really sucks. And let's hurry up and get back to a place where we can forget about that. Well, you know, there's people, a lot of people who never have had that opportunity to go through life. Like you've mentioned, uh, ignorant of injustice because they carry it in their skin color. You know, they carry it in, um, you know, their sexual identity, all these ways that have made them marginalized in society. And so for me, I'm like, they there's we have teachers all around us who know how to go through life and say the rest of my life I will struggle with this Mm -hmm. and I will be resilient and I will make paths forward I will engage in delight and joy you know like there's this hashtag um you know black girl magic black boy joy all of that stuff is really cool because Mm -hmm. um joy as resistance it doesn't mean a lot when it's coming from like a white person who's telling you to buy a cozy blanket to feel mm. better. You know, that's like mm. capitalism and all that mm. stuff and numbing. Mm. But, but when like, like when the black church is singing um, these songs and that allow them to express joy, I'm like, Whoa, mm-hmm. this is a joy that is tied to Jesus. Like Jesus's joy is rooted in his context, right? As someone who knew he was going to die, who knew the religious folks would hate him, who, who was poor, brown skinned, you know, all of this stuff. So, so for me, I'm like, Oh, I'm just so glad. You know, I don't consider myself an ex evangelical Mm. because I'm still so freaking Christian. I just am and I can't escape it. In some ways it feels like, oh, my life would be a lot easier if I could just let it all go, you know, and say to hell with it. But instead I'm like, I'm just so grateful. I get to learn from so many people who have continued to follow Jesus and wanted to take Jesus seriously. You know, like what if Jesus really meant the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of people who have wondered that and said, maybe I can do something in my life to model this. And it just makes me feel less lonely. It makes me feel less sad. And again, I'm kind of shocked at how much I'm really into these Christian practices of repentance, confession, and lament and sort of reclaiming like, this is what it means to be a Christian in the world. You will go through life lamenting. You will go through life confessing where you've done wrong. And you will go through your life seeking repentance and reconciliation with your neighbors that you've wronged. It's like, mm. man, I need that. I need mm-hmm. that to go forward in the world. And, and it's like, whoa, the church has that. Um, even yeah, though it's been co-opted in many ways by dominant culture, it's like, it's still there. Yeah. There's lots of faithful people who've been practicing this. And, you know, just a little note to myself and other people listening, it's like, Um, I'm not the one to like fix any of this because I'm a part of creating the problem. And so it's just so exciting to be like, there's lots of other people who have that imagination. You've already, you've already said, and Brueggemann himself also says it it comes from the margins. That imagination Mm -hmm. will come from the margins. It's not going to come from Solomon, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's going to come from the people he taxed terribly and all that stuff. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Oh, I appreciate you so much for, uh, for saying yes to this invitation, especially what is it? Nine days after a coup and a siege on the Capitol. Oh gosh, so for somebody writing yeah. on the myth of the American dream, somebody who 
you know, has a role culturally to lead and to, uh, to guide people through moments like this, that in and of itself is a challenge. So to take this time with me and with us during this intense moment, I really, really am so grateful for it. So before we go, most recent book, the one I've been kind of referencing, Myth of the American Dream, just came out in 2020, although that was 2020, so that was about six years ago, in our minds and hearts. So go and buy that. And also, do you want to mention the, the podcast you were telling me about before? Yeah, my husband and I, we have a podcast called The Prophetic Imagination Station, and we kind of like look at evangelical pop culture stuff. You probably missed out on a lot of this, Kevin, but um, just like for people who grew up in the culture, we do Adventures in Odyssey, Frank Peretti. Right now we're doing C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia. It's kind of fun. Mm, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so go and check it out. Wow, that's we we both have the uh, the imagination the 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 appreciation for Brugma. I like that the, yep, the prophetic yep. imagination station. Yep. Uh-huh. That's why sometimes I am left out when people make jokes about like oh like a flannel graph or this. I'm like I don't. You I should never count yourself know, blessed. I never know any <laughs> hymns that people. I don't know any unless it was like after 2005, probably. So oh. there's a lot of that from the edges I get from writing like yours when people reference it. Yeah. So I know enough to get it, but I don't. I don't feel it in the way other people do. <laughs> you know, what I mean, I don't like have it. In, I don't have those ties. So I consider you. I consider you lucky, but you know. You know, it's, it's yeah. All, I had three it's years in Bible college, and when I see the kid with like his jeans rolled up, like leading worship in between classes, I was like, "All right, I get it. Like this is <laughs> like a youth. This is what youth group like summer camps were yeah, like youth 2. group 0, culture. Basically. Oh yeah, oh yeah, exactly. Well, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. Twenty twenty one, hoping for more and more goodness and more and more reasons to share the poetry and saying yes to the good things while you still have the courage to say no to everything that's getting in the way. So appreciate yeah. you.